Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast that you're only allowed to stop listening to in the first third, because we, the Supreme Court, says so. Uh, because today we're talking about abortion, specifically abortion throughout history. Uh, was it legal? How was it done? Uh, what did the Romans have to say about it? Because we, we love them Romans. And what ongoing struggles happen with it today? All of these things we will attempt to answer, but first, as always... Uh, how have you been since last we spoke? I have been busy. <laughs> um, I had an exam recently. I visited Eastern Europe. I don't know if people know, but I was born in Moldova. And so, you know, then I moved away. And now I kind of have to like visit for, for various um, for various reasons. Yeah, you have to check in with the KGB. Yeah, mm, yeah, I have to be on Moldovan land <laughs> once every two months or else I'm, I'm in trouble. <laughs> um no, but I visited, and that's always a really fun experience. Just because it looks and it feels so different when you've lived somewhere else for a while. I ate at a Japanese restaurant in the middle of, of the capital, which was also an interesting experience. Because was this like... They, I mean, they made it look pretty authentic, right? So it was this tiny Japanese restaurant with the, the kanji and the, you know, the decor and the very nice looking food. Mm-hmm. But it was in the middle of like a very Soviet looking neighborhood <laughs> with like the brutalist architecture, like the gray buildings. Um, so it was a really weird. Like, why why am I going for Japanese cuisine and like Eastern Europe? Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, fun. you could ask that, like, why are we going for Japanese cuisine in Western Europe? When you think about it, it's just as weird. It's just like, there, I guess there's more concrete in Eastern Europe and more glass in Western Europe. Yeah, but... I mean, I guess the it's it's made more weird by the fact that there's like no migration mm. into Moldova. Yeah. Like when I when I lived there, I didn't see a black person until I was like twelve. It is also the country in Europe with the least amount of tourism. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Of any so any country in Europe, exactly. So like, how are Eastern European people who've never met like Asian people? How do they know how to cook Japanese food? <laughs> that's, like that's who's making kind of, this food? Yeah, who's making this food? How did you find out about this? It was not good. <laughs> Nobody is surprised. (laughs) They had these like sushis. They were basically just filled with cream cheese. Mm. Well, I mean, I I haven't tried this food, obviously, and I don't want to like defend or badmouth this Moldovan restaurant. But like, I've had pretty bad Japanese food in Sweden too. Yeah, like made by like authentic Japanese chefs. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, fair. Sorry, how have you been? I've been well. I have. Uh, I'm getting my brain checked out for uh, various for various things, just because I'm very scatter-minded and very forgetful, uh, and I'm tired of it. But otherwise, I've been good. I've been uh, like prepping, you know, before the holidays. I made a video in like a week. Uh, usually, I need like four weeks to make a video, but I made a video in, in, for just for December. So I'm doing that just so I can take the holidays off. And now I'm on vacation making a podcast. Uh, the, the work of a self-employed person never ends. It never ends. Well, when you work from home, you're, you never work, but you also never have free time. Yeah, exactly. So it, you live in uh, dystopian limbo uh, until you die. Um, and speaking of living in dystopian limbo, <laughs> we want to thank, of course, our patrons. Thank you, patrons, for supporting the show. 
Patrons have access to early episodes, notes we use while recording, and more recently, a video version of the podcast with uh, you know some extra content in it that doesn't make it into the audio release. You can also suggest topics, Easter eggs, and you also have a chance for a shout out inside the episode itself. And for this episode, we want to thank Jacqueline. Thank you, Jacqueline, for supporting this episode, for supporting the podcast, for helping us um, keep doing this. It's people like you who, um, you know, keep this podcast running. Yeah. Uh, And with that, how about we dive in the cervix of knowledge? Oh, my God. And learn a little bit about the history of abortion. (laughs) Wait, how does that song go? Dive in her cervix. No, but no, what's the... How does it... Rest in peace Rest to in peace. all the soldiers. <laughs> who died, died in, in, in the, the service. service. I, I died, died in, in her cervix. cervix. Um, this is a very a lot serious of, topic. A lot of this can't go in the audio version, I think. But it's gonna, no, be, no. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. Uh, speaking content of serious topic, warning. we should content. Yes, yeah. I was about to mention that. Uh, before we start with the episode, we wanted to give a quick content warning. Um, you know, abortion is a heavy topic, it's a sensitive topic, so if you feel like you are not comfortable with listening to this episode, please feel free to skip it. Mm. We are going to have more lightweight episodes mm. coming <laughs> coming yeah. along. And just be prepared that we're going to talk about some like some sensitive stuff. Yeah. Abortion is, as you said, it's controversial and it's sensitive for a lot of people. Some yeah. people don't find it sensitive at all, but a lot of people do. And we want to make sure that everyone listening to this has a good time. So Mia, I'm gonna I'm gonna start us off. I'm gonna be talking about the history of abortion, and specifically, I'm gonna talk about like abortion methods for time. I'm gonna start from the very beginning uh, and talk about the methods and talk about like the views, so social views, kind of the role that religious institutions have played in how abortions were seen. And uh, yeah, I think that's gonna be my part. And then you're gonna talk about like legislation and mm. criminalization and things like that, just so people know like how the topics are going to be divided. Mm-hmm. I'm also sprinkling in some light philosophy from ancient Greece. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so I'll dive right into it. As you can imagine, abortion has been around for quite some time. It's actually been around basically since given birth has been around. Mm-hmm. We have references to abortion and contraception and recorded evidence of induced abortion dating up to two millennia BC. And they're found in early Chinese and Egyptian medical texts. We know a lot about abortion in ancient Roman and Greek history just because they were really good at like holding track of things. <laughs> um, and we have examples in both medical but also literary texts. So, for example, there is this Latin author, Juvenal. He mentions our skilled abortionists in his collection of poems called Satires, which was written in the early 2nd century. I think abortionist is a very interesting term that I don't think people would use today. N- no, but it's actually been used up until the 19th century. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Like, because as we're going to get into abortion, this controversy around it is a lot more reason than people think. Abortion is also mentioned in the Hippocratic Oath, which is one of the most widely known Greek medical texts, which physicians take as a promise to uphold certain ethical standards. And it was written sometime between the 3rd and the 5th century. It's not really known for sure if the Hippocratic Oath was written by Hippocrates or if it was written by somebody else. 
but we just assume that it was written by him. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is actually the correct translation is debated because it's not really known if he was pro or against abortions. Mm -hmm. um, so some people say that the correct translation of the oath would be, neither will I give a woman means to procure an abortion. But proponents say that the correct translation is actually, neither will I give a suppository, also translated as pessary, to cause an abortion. So according to the later view, Hippocrates didn't actually oppose abortion, he just opposed methods which could 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 be dangerous could yeah. carry a risk mm. it's interesting that like even modern day discussions people are like trying to justify their current opinions by like interpreting what some mm -hmm. guy who died 2000 years ago mm -hmm. like meant when he like, wrote something down yeah exactly like, like even what, if he was against it like why does it matter now? like who cares? Who, who cares who gives a who gives a crap yeah and also like the the um second translation is or the idea that he was pro-abortion is translated by other texts which are also attributed to him in which he describes a graduated set of dilators that could be used for abortions and prescriptions for abortifacients which is a word i learned preparing for this episode and which means substance substance which will cause a miscarriage from the latin abortus meaning miscarriage and patients meaning making. But yeah, like, I mean, he had all these texts in which he described tools and substances, yeah. but like in the end, even if he was against abortion, like how does that affect what we do now? Yeah. Like, it doesn't. No, not at all. So a common abortifacient and also contraceptive in ancient Greece was the herb Silphium. And the herb was exported from Cyrene, which is one of the five most important cities in ancient Greece. Do you know about Cyrene? I've heard about it, but I don't know much about it. I just I was wondering because you're a history person. Yeah, unfortunately, in history, they mostly talk about the, the big two. The big two. Okay. Athens and Sparta. All right. Everything else is eh. All right. So the herb was exported from Cyrene. And apparently it was so important to the Cyrenian economy that most of its coins were embedded with the image of the plant. <laughs> like, that was their <laughs> major... Main export. Main export. Abortion pills. Yeah. Hell Contraceptive yes. pills. I yeah. love this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the equivalent would be like Condom Town, where all of its yeah. money just condom has condoms on oh it. Oh my god. Or like the pill. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, the herb has been driven to extinction. <laughs> Damn it. They Can't just, have they, anything. Anybody would like see it grow on the ground, just be like, give it. Give, give it. it. <laughs> I want to have sex so bad. Um, give me the plant. So the herb has been driven to extinction, but it is believed that it possessed the same abortive properties as its cousins in the family Apiaceae. 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 Which is the celery, carrot, and parsley family. Oh, <laughs> yeah, love that. Um, another common abortifacient, which is cited by Pliny the Elder oh. in approximately 60 Common Era, is the refined oil of the common rue which was also mixed with oleander to be drunk as an antidote to venomous snake bites. So, you know, it had a, a variety of, of uses. Yeah. The rue oil was mixed with egg and dill to form a concoction. Um, sounds this is, this delicious. Is like, yeah, I was about to say, this is like a Swedish sandwich cake. Yeah, but um, but I'm not sure if the, if the substance or the concoction was drunk or if it was like applied internally in mm. some way, like as a pessary. Do you know what a pessary is? It's like, yes. It's put into you. Yeah, it goes It goes inside you. Yes. I I know this. Um, I found out about this like two months ago. Hmm. So 
Um, also, interestingly, modern scientific studies have confirmed that this plant actually does have abortive properties, like rue. Mm -hmm. um, so the Greeks were onto something there. Uh, birthwort, which was also used to ease childbirth, was prescribed as a way to induce abortion as well. Mm -hmm. According to Galen, it could be administered by mouth as a potion, or it could be made into a vaginal pessary containing pepper and myrrh. Pepper and myrrh? All these things. That's why the wise men gave myrrh to Mary. Listen, so Mary, no more it's kids. Not, it's not that late. You had one messiah. You can't have more. <laughs> the wise so men offensive. were there to say, listen, this child is going to cause a lot of drama, both in his life sure? and in the next coming 2,000 years. Like, are you sure? We have myrrh. All right. We need to, we need to settle down. <laughs> um in addition to herbs, other commonly cited methods included strenuous labor, climbing, riding horses, and carrying heavy loads. Hippocrates is said to have advised a prostitute who became pregnant to jump up and down, touching her buttocks with her heels at each leap so as to induce miscarriage. <laughs> Just aerobics. Other writings attributed to him describe instruments potentially used for early surgical abortions, including tools to dilate the cervix and curettes, which are pointy hand tools with a small scoop or hook at the tip, which are typically used to scrape biological tissue. So, you know, they did also surgical abortions back then. Mm. However, the use of sharp instruments was typically advised against as they carried the risk of perforating organs. Diuretics, emenagogues, enemas, fasting, and bloodletting were used as well. And emenagogues uh, is another thing which I just learned about, and they are herbs which stimulate blood flow to the pelvic area and uterus, and they're used to stimulate menstruation. Oh. So it, like, yeah. flushes things out. Yeah, smart. As far as the social view on abortions, according to the Stoic school of thought, founded by Hellenistic scholars in the 3rd century, fetuses were plant-like in nature. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't an animal until it breathed air, which made abortions morally acceptable. Aristotle also drew the line between lawful and unlawful abortion based on whether the fetus being aborted had sensation and was alive. He believed that the embryo would gain a human soul at 40 days if it was male, and 90 days if it was female. <laughs> which, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and he believed that before it gained a soul, it would have vegetable or animal souls. Mm. Damn, I was I was hoping to take that, those parts. I'm glad that you have it, but I have those in my script and I was like so looking forward to talking about it. It's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I still have stuff about Greek, Greek being, law. So. Yeah, benefit of being the first to go. Yeah. But yeah, my only question here is how did they actually know if the fetus was male or female? Uh, it's probably something that they would like look after the fact and like do a retroactive judgment on it. Okay, so you are free to do whatever you want, but whether you go to jail or become executed is like... We'll see after. It's like a 50-50 chance. Yeah. Yeah. So they were not able to like uh, look into the gender of the baby when it was still in the, in, the, in the belly. However, they were able to, they thought they were able to predict the sex of the baby. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit, if it's okay. Yeah. So Hippocratic doctors advised parents hoping for boys to consume hot, dry, and strong foods, such as red wine sprinkled with black cumin. To conceive a girl, Hippocratic doctors prescribed wet, cool, feminine foods, such as lettuce or white wine. <laughs> white wine is clearly more womanly than yeah, red wine. Yeah, it's more feminine, and then red wine is, is more masculine. They also believed that the left side of the womb nourished 
female children and the right nourished males. So in order to choose a child's sex, women had to conceive on the side of the womb corresponding to their preferred gender. So Hippocratic doctors advised couples who wanted girls to tie the male partner's right testicle with string, um, hopefully directing sperm towards the left side of the womb in the opposite for male babies. Mm -hmm. There were also some theories that said that like the left testicle has the boys, the right one has the girls. Yeah, so just tie the one that you're not just interested tie the in. Tie the one you want to want. It can go up. <laughs> they had a lot of interesting theories about testicles too. Like they, some of them there thought that they were just like weights. Yeah. Like a lot of them just thought that they were weights that had no function in birthing at all. It's just like, come on. Come on. It's not that hard to figure out. If the guys with no nuts can't have kids. Can you draw the conclusion? Can you draw the basic conclusion here? Well, correlation does not equal causation. I guess yeah. they were very, just very critical. Yeah. They were ahead of their time when it comes to statistics. <laughs> to critical thinking, yeah. Um, we can't draw any conclusions. I'm trying so hard to make a piece stored in the balls joke. <laughs> I can't, like, I can't find an in, but... Pea is stored in the in the right side of the of the womb. Pea is stored in the right side of the womb. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> I'll drop it. The third testicle is the bladder. <laughs> so when it comes to legality and morality of abortion, overall it was generally seen through the lens of the father's wishes and the continuation of his dynasty. So was the father around? Did he want more children? Did he want somebody to like? continue his dynasty mm. um those were like the main questions that were relevant to like the question of abortion yeah for example in ancient greece abortion was mostly legal however it was considered a crime in athens against the husband if his wife was pregnant when he died since his unborn child could have claimed the estate in India, according to Vedic laws, which are the original traditional Hindu teachings, there was a concern with preserving the male seed of the free upper castes, which led to abortion being unfavorably viewed by religious orders. So women who obtained abortions were given a variety of penances, and the priests who provide abortions were typically excommunicated. According to Assyrian law in circa 1075, uh, before Common Era, a woman procuring an abortion could be punished with a death penalty if the abortion was done against the husband's wishes. So again, like it's it's the husband who kind of makes the decision. Early Islamic teachings prohibited abortion after the soul entered the body, but this of course is open to interpretation. When does the soul enter the body? The number that is typically used is 120 days, but it kind of has varied um, over history between seven weeks and 16 weeks. And as far as pregnancies and abortions went, it seems that generally they believed that such matters were best left in God's hands. Like it should be, it should be God who decides whether a baby lives or dies. Mm. Um, you know, if you're if you think you can't afford to have a baby, then you should just trust that God will provide. So that was kind of like the major perspective. Mm -hmm. But abortion was acceptable if the parents felt like they couldn't uh, provide for the child, or if the birth would put the mother's life in danger. In Southeast Asia, abortions were strongly opposed by classical Hindu practitioners, however, they were still practiced. Um, yeah. A technique of deep massage abortions involving the application of pressure to the pregnant abdomen was commonly used, which, by the way, was very painful and dangerous, as it could lead to hemorrhages. 
There is even a temple in Cambodia called Angkor Wat, which is carved with the depiction of a woman getting such an abortion massage from a demon, which is one of the earliest visual representations of abortion. And I'm going to put the picture on Twitter. Mm. Um, and I was, I was actually really curious about the interpretation of the freeze, like why is the de demon giving the woman an abortion? Mm. And I looked into it and apparently the idea is that the Angkor freezes are supposed to represent various circles of hell which in Hindu belief, they're tailored to treat different perpetrators of different crimes. So this particular hell, the one with the person getting an abortion, is known by the name of the hell of screaming of the, or the hell of groaning. Um, <laughs> the and, hell of groaning. Ugh. Yeah. In Hindu and Buddhist belief, hell represents a process of atonement, which is different from the Christian hell where people just get punished for their sins forever. So the abortion received in the particular freeze may be interpreted as a remedy for some sin that the woman committed in her lifetime, or perhaps as a form of punishment for having had an abortion while alive. Mm. I also wanted to mention just like the, the calling it a massage, I feel like is also like a bit of a like nice euphemism. Because it's like basically getting like punched in the stomach. Yeah, like, I think I saw some pictures. Even that's, yeah. I saw some pictures. They use their hands, but they also have this like wooden tool. It's like almost like a, I don't know what to call it. It, it looks like um, a pestle almost mm. that you use to kind of like, you know, massage the stuff out. Mm -hmm. But it goes like really hard and really yeah, deep. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's it very hurts. painful. It's yeah. dangerous. I think it's still practiced today, like the traditional like abortion procedure. But I think most people know that it's not yeah, don't do preferable. That. Yeah. In Japan, documents show records of induced abortion from as early as the 12th century. Abortion was especially prevalent during the Edo period, especially among the peasant class, who were especially hit by famines and the high taxation um, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Edo period, not, not fun. Fun for military historians, not fun if you're a peasant. Yeah. I haven't been able to find super much about like how it was viewed, but what we know is that it was very common. Mm. So now that I talked about it, um, like generally, I wanted to talk about pre-modern abortions from the perspective of Christianity, because there's this notion that is kind of misguided that abortion did not exist in pre-modern society because of long-standing religious, moral, and legal prohibition of the practice. And that's not really how it was. It is true that the rise of Christianity in Europe brought more public regulation of sexual life, and that did include the general official condemnation of abortion, but the implementation of penalties really depended on the prominent thinkers at the specific time point. And there were also gray areas that were considered when doling out penalties. For example, the term of the fetus, the social and the financial status of the mother or the parents, whether they repented, <laughs> and, and so on. And also abortion was typically seen as a matter concerning the church and civic officials didn't really get involved in doling up penalties. So these punishments were um, somewhat poorly carried out. So here are some examples. The metropolis of Ansira in what is now Turkey stated that women found to have committed or attempted an abortion were to be exiled from the church for 10 years. However, in the mid-4th century, the church father Basil the Great revised these decrees, suggesting that the time should be dependent on the repentance of the person. The 4th century church father John Chrysostom, while criticizing abortions, in one sermon he offered the example of a sex worker who had to have an abortion so as to not lose her livelihood. In the sermon, he placed blame not on the woman, but on the client who caused her dilemma, saying, the shameless act is hers, the cause of it is yours. Therefore, it is the client who is responsible for the sin, not the sex worker. 
I like that perspective. It was very like forward thinking. <laughs> I also very like progressive <laughs> man. In the fourth century. In the first century, yeah. Yeah, I like I, you know people talk a lot of shit about like church like morals during that time, and to be fair, there were a lot of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, sometimes you get this stuff where just like abortion is wrong, and it's and it just points past the person who's having the abortion and pointing to the one who caused it. Like it's your fault. <laughs> Yeah. The person who has an abortion is not at fault. It's the person who caused the abortion. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it's be- it's a better perspective than like a lot of people have now. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to see people who, despite their circumstance, are able to show like very progressive, critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just really interesting. Yeah. How some people can just look past like what they know and just be like, do you know what? It's not your fault. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about when I, okay, because you are going to talk about the laws, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the criminalization and all that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to talk too much. I don't want to take too much from your part. But I want to just mention a little bit here because it's linked to, to like religious entities. Yeah. So in the laws of the Henry I, written in around a thousand Pre-quickening abortion is considered a misdemeanor, and post-quickening abortion is uh, carries a lesser penalty than homicide. Quickening is a term that was used a lot at the time, and it's also uh, used interchangeably with insolment or animation. And while there was some disagreement about when the fetus got a soul, it was most commonly associated with the first movement of the fetus in utero, which is generally felt by women sometime in the third to fifth month of pregnancy. The midwives who performed abortions were also accused of committing witchcraft in Maleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of Witches, published in 1487 <laughs> as a witch-hunting manual in Germany. Yeah, we've talked about that one. Yeah, and actually Germany, there are a few towns in Germany that had more... Um, witch burnings in like a few years than the whole of Europe oh, yeah. had like forever like oh, for yeah. some for some reason they just really cracked down on midwives uh, performing abortions in like a few towns in Germany mm-hmm. people talk a lot about like in England and like North America no and, like, it's Germany it's like Germany is like some, some, the capital yeah some some guy just really loved his job he was like I'm gonna do my job so well <laughs> I'm gonna catch all the witches. Every single one. He like recently got promoted. He was like, I'm gonna do the best job. I'm gonna be promoted again. God's gonna love me. As far as the Protestant Reformation goes, they kind of retained the teachings of their time against abortion. In his commentary on Exodus 21-22, John Calvin wrote, The unborn, though enclosed in the womb of his mother, is already a human being, and it is an almost monstrous crime to rob it of life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. In his 1535-1545 commentary on Genesis, Martin Luther noted, How great, therefore, the wickedness of human nature is! How many girls there are who prevent conception and kill and expel tender fetuses, although procreation is the work of God. I love the first sentence because it's basically... Like, if 500 years ago, Martin Luther was like, we live in a society. <laughs> how great, we live in a society. How great, therefore, the wickedness of human nature is. 
<laughs> it's about to become Joker. Yeah. In cause of religious wars. People talk about a lot, of, like, people talk today about, like, Catholicism being the sort of, like, more conservative of the two compared to, like, Protestantism. But, like, a big reason why the Reformation happened was because Martin Luther and, like, other people were like, you know what? The church is too liberal. <laughs> the church is too kind to people. We can't have that. We're going to go back to our roots of being assholes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in a letter written in 1544, Luther strongly condemned a woman who reportedly had another person jump on her belly to induce abortion. First of all, what the fuck? <laughs> Second of all, if, you know, if, because I mean, there, there weren't so many, like, writings about abortion. Like, it wasn't explicitly talked against mm -hmm. by them. So, like, people were not super sure what their stances were, but, you know, like, these things kind of tell you, like, they were very much against abortion. Yeah, yeah. In 1588, Pope Sixtus V issued a papal decree classifying abortion, regardless of stage and fetal development, as homicide. This was part of the counter-reformation drive to stump out illicit sexual activities of various kinds, as abortions could be procured to hide sinful sexual relationships, particularly those between priests and women in their spiritual care. The papal bow also meant that anybody who had sought, performed, or aided in an abortion could be excommunicated from the church and could only seek forgiveness by traveling to Rome, which was a dangerous and expensive trip that was almost impossible to undertake secretly, which people almost always wanted to do because nobody wanted to admit that they had an abortion. Yeah. I'm not going to go too much into detail, but the story of this papal bow is that um, it, it basically like it, it was impossible to implement because priests from everywhere would write to this guy being like, hey, like, nobody can actually go to Rome. Like, what are you thinking? Nobody can afford We're to go to Rome. talking about? Yeah, like, can I... Can like, you everyone's just... a peasant. They have $2. <laughs> can you just, like, give me the the ability to forgive them in confession? Because nobody's going to go to like, Rome. No one's going to go. And apparently, when he didn't, people would just, like, ignore it. Like, I... they would be ex excommunicated, and people would just be like, okay, bet. <laughs> bet. I just love the idea yeah. of, like, this pope doing this, and a lot of peasants and also a lot of clergy are just like, bad take, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You posted cringe on this one, bro. It's, it's never gonna work. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> so, anyway, um, he, he, he ended up giving priests permission to forgive the people who committed the sin in confession. Yeah, like, he was so excited, so overzealous, and then he just had to be like, oh, fuck. Damn it, Fine. Fine. Apology um, tweet in, the, <laughs> in notes. People can't, don't have to go to Rome. I'm sorry. I take responsibility. Hi, chat. I'm here to address the recent controversy about... Piano music in the background. Dog, holding dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, okay, but that's not the point. The point is, he was like trying to be really harsh about it, right? Yeah. And then immediately after his death in 1590s, Pope Gregory XIV rolled back the dictate, limiting it again to sold fetuses. So, in conclusion, what I'm trying to say here is these laws really depended on the person who was making the laws at the time. And it was kind of like bouncing from it being prohibited and it being like uh, punished like very severely to it being allowed in some circumstances or it being like officially illegal, but like n never actually punished for it. Also, despite the pushback from religious and some legal authorities, medical historical evidence offers a very different story from that offered by official religious or legal texts. So while abortions and the use of contraceptives was technically not allowed, 
um, good Christian families, and um, specifically the women, were often taking advantage of family planning techniques, and that included abortions. And this was, of course, especially relevant to rich women who had access to medical knowledge, treatment, and also privacy. The 19th century saw advances in the fields of surgery, anesthesia, and sanitation, as well as a gain of momentum in the women's rights movement, which actually ends up being obviously very important in the discussion um, surrounding abortion. The women's rights movement is cited as one of the reasons why the English-speaking world passed laws against abortion at all stages of the pregnancy, despite it having been previously legally practiced under common law. There's, of course, other reasons why mm-hmm. um, these laws were passed, and you're actually going to talk about it later. Yeah, the point here is that laws started being introduced. But, of course, abortions were still practiced. A paper published in 1870 in Syracuse, New York, concluded that the method most practiced was to flush the inside of the uterus with injected water, which was um, also relatively affordable compared to other prices at the time. In Great Britain, for example, it would cost from 10 to 50 guineas, which was 5% of the income of a lower to middle class household. And I... I've run the numbers. Okay. Because <laughs> I was actually curious, like, how much would that um, yeah. be today? And so, like, if we have a double income household, both people bringing, like, 40000 um a year, uh-huh. um, they would we have, have a lot to, of money. But yeah. Well, 40000 is, like, a median income in the United States. All right. Uh, they would have to pay 4000 USD per abortion now. Good God. Yeah, it was very expensive. How much are abortions today? I don't like know. I'm thinking, like in America, like they can be pretty expensive. I think it's actually more than that. Abortion United States price. Because you said four thousand dollars per abortion, like that was the equivalent. The average cost for a first trimester abortion in the U.S. is about five hundred dollars, anywhere mm-hmm. between seventy-five and twenty-five hundred. Okay. So it was way more expensive then. Thank God. However, one did not have to go to a doctor to get an abortion because abortive substances were also advertised in the newspaper. They were discreetly advertised and there was also considerable folklore about methods inducing miscarriages. Among working class women, violent purgatives were popular, including pennyroyal, aloe and turpentine. (laughs) Other methods to induce miscarriages were very hot baths and gin extreme exertion, a controlled fall down a flight of stairs, or veterinary medicines. Women living in a mining town in Wales during the 1920s used candles intended for Roman Catholic ceremonies to dilate the cervix in order to self-induce abortion. That is hard rock cool as hell. It's rough, obviously, I mean, I but the fact that they're like candles meant for like church yeah. services, like to me there's like there's an irony there which is cool. It's yeah. awful. Yeah, I wish they didn't have to do it. Like I no. see, I see, what, I see what you mean, but I don't think um, I don't think it's cool. I think it's horrible and heartbreaking. They had. Oh to do yeah, it. for sure. But it, to, to me, I'm just saying that like it would be a, the equivalent would be like using a crucifix. Yeah. Like there, there's a thematic through line here, which is, which is badass despite the circumstances, which are awful. Yeah. Um, so the use of candles was uh, common. Uh, objects like glass rods, pen holders, curling irons, spoons, sticks, knives, and catheters were reported in the 19th century in the United States. Uh, Backstreet abortionists were also fairly common, despite the risks carried by their interventions. In New York, surgical abortion in the 19th century carried a 30% death rate, regardless of setting. So even if it was done by 
um, by trained um, midwives or nurses in hygienic settings, uh, the death rate was still pretty, yeah. pretty high. Like I mentioned earlier, abortion services and abortive substances and devices were printed as ads in newspapers. Examples of such surreptitiously marketed abortifacients included Hardy's Woman's Friend, Lydia Pinkham Vegetable Compound, Dr. Peter's French Renovating Pills. Renovating pills. They renovate your cervix. They do. Um, They often claimed to treat temporarily indisposed women, relieve female complaints, restore female regularity, and remove from the system every impurity. (laughs) And they did. (laughs) It's like a juice cleanse for your cervix. These euphemisms were commonly understood to refer to the state of pregnancy. Other ads explicitly warned against the use of their product by women who were expecting or listed miscarriages as an inevitable side effect. For example, the copy for Dr. Peter's French renovating pills advised pregnant females should not use them as they inevitably produce a miscarriage. Thus, women would have understood this warning as an advertisement for an abortifacient preparation. Basically, a big label being like, warning, this will cause abortion. Do not use this if you do not want an abortion. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very creative. I saw an advertisement while researching for Beecham's Pills, um, mm-hmm. which had the advertisement the, the advertisement slogan of uh, that it helped the woman's natural process. Whatever the hell that but means. I mean, it probably meant uh, that it was going to restore menstruation. Yeah, prob- that's probably the reference. Yeah, because a lot of the, the substances would like um, simulate menstruation mm. and menstruation happens when the uterus mm. contracts. Yeah, and a lot and of them also- were like marketed to women who were delayed. Yeah, exactly. So that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and I mean, with, uh, with abortion pills too, it just causes like a very... Uh, strong contractions of yeah. the uterus, which eventually like releases the fetus yeah. or embryo, I guess. Yeah. As you can imagine, these products were not regulated, so sometimes they were effective, but many of them were either inefficient or unsafe. For example, one type of pill contained ergotin, aloe, and black hellebore. And I don't know if you remember, but ergotin is the fungus found on rye and wheat that mm-hmm. LSD is derived from. <laughs> <laughs> and black hellebore is a plant that was used in antiquity as a treatment for insanity. <laughs> melancholy gout and epilepsy i just love how this herb treats insanity yes insanity yeah like are you insane are you insane this will fix it yeah so the the, it treats all of those things but it's also toxic causing tinnitus stupor swelling of the tongue and throat vomiting and slowing of the heartbeat and of course every substance can be a poison if you ingest enough Yeah, yeah um but so I don't mean to say that like all these products were dangerous, but they were unregulated and they often contained powerful substances. So you can imagine that, um, you know, a lot of the people that took them either did not get the intended outcome or they got uh, poisoned. Uh, yeah. They got all sorts of like negative effects from mm-hmm. them. However, despite risks, the advertising of these products was highly effective at least in the United States, for some reason, didn't really work in Europe so well. But the United States, the Americans loved them. <laughs> the era also saw a marked shift in who was getting abortions. Before the start of the 19th century, it was primarily unmarried women who had babies out of wedlock who were seeking abortions. Out of half of the 54 abortion cases published in American medical journals between 1849 and 1880, over half were sought by married women, most of whom had already had at least one child. Much of the blame for the rising abortion rates was placed on the feminist movement, but a lot of the feminists at the time were actually against abortion. 
in The Revolution, which was a feminist newspaper published by women's rights activists at the time, an anonymous writer says, No matter the motive, love of ease, or desire to save from suffering the unborn innocent, the woman is awfully guilty who commits the deed. But oh, thrice guilty is he who drove her to the desperation which impelled her to do the crime. Therefore, to many feminists at the time, abortion was seen as an undesirable necessity forced upon women by thoughtless men. Even the free love wing of the feminist movement refused to advocate for abortion. Overall, feminists saw it as being caused by marital rape, by the seduction of unmarried women, or otherwise by the men's refusal to respect women's rights to abstinence. However, socialist feminists were somewhat more sympathetic to the need for abortion options for the poor, as they ultimately saw that the consequences of having unwanted children would be disastrous to, to, to their livelihoods. Yeah. Um, and that was my part. <laughs> that was uh-huh. my very long part about the history of abortion and like methods and social acceptance and mm. views. And now you're going to talk to us about the legal status mm. of abortion. We're digging into the nitty gritty of it. Yeah. And um, specifically, you're going to talk about what led to its eventual criminalization. Yes. All right. Let's talk about abortion legality. First of all, I love talking about legality because in history, legal documents are like the few ones remaining because lawyers keep writing stuff down. Uh, Never change lawyers. Same with tax documents. Everything that's taxed, we know everything about that. We don't know anything about like how like Romans baked bread because we, Mm -hmm. they would write like, use eggs, what eggs? We don't know. Uh, But we know exactly how they were taxed. And I'm going to stick to the legality here as much as I can. We do know a fair bit about the legality of it. As you mentioned, in the ancient world, it was not super codified into law. And one of the reasons for this is because it was traditionally seen as a a women's business uh, and not something for men to like care about or Mm -hmm. worry about or legislate about. It was something that was like in between women, like they all sorted out. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they did care. Like if, you know, if a family had like, six children mm-hmm. and there was a question of should we have one more then they didn't mm-hmm. they didn't give a shit yeah. be, whatever but if they didn't have any children or the husband was dead and then suddenly the matter of inheritance was brought up that's when they cared yeah and i was just about to to bring that up too because like as you mentioned from the poet lysias you know if a wife was pregnant when her, her husband died yeah uh, then the unborn child could have claimed the estate but this is seen very much as a type of like loss of property uh, question rather than like, like the loss of an heir yeah. or like the loss of like a life. This is yeah. very much seen as like, okay, wh- who, who gets the stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like who gets this guy's stuff? Is it the wife? Is it the kid? It should be the kid, but the kid's dead. So it's yeah. like, mm. yeah. So it's not so much about morality. It's more about like property. Like you said. Exactly. Um, you also mentioned the Stoics of the third century. Their attitudes that like fetuses are like vegetables, <laughs> like plants, like, uh, that's an attitude that was shared in like a lot of wider Greek society. And therefore, they also viewed abortion as like morally acceptable, as you said. The most common through line uh, about the legality of abortion comes about uh, when talking about the quickening, which is when the, the fetal matter begins to move around. When it, become, when it gets a soul. <laughs> when it gets a soul, but when it becomes ensouled. Because a lot of people viewed it as like, it's that the fetus begins to move when it has fully formed arms and legs. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it is, like, alive. Before it moves, it's not alive. And legal statute here is very much on a case-by-case basis, like, depending on 
various kingdoms or cities or um, or just like what families themselves wanted to do. And a lot of the times this couldn't even be enforced though, because the only witness to the quickening was often the mother yeah. uh, or the pregnant person generally. That like, <laughs> like if, if you have an abortion and the judge and you get called up to the judge being like, hey, did the baby move? <laughs> yeah. What are you going to say? <laughs> what are you going to say? Like, yeah, it did. And then you die. <laughs> yeah. Um, but actually, no, you wouldn't die because a lot of the punishment after the quickening was mostly exile. The Greeks loved their exiles. That's their go-to punishment for a lot of things. Um, and the, the worst ones sometimes, depending on the kingdom or whatever, would be death. But oftentimes it would be a period of 15 years, which for a lot of people just meant that like you can't live in the city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just move out. So was a city dependent or was it like... Exile was city-dependent. Okay, so you could just move to another city. Well, I mean, city and country in ancient Greece is basically the same mm, thing. Fair. Like, if you're exiled from, like, the empire of Athens, you know, if you if you walk for two hours, you're done. You're good. Yeah. No, I was just wondering if... Because um, I, I don't remember if they were centralized at that point or not. New. Uh, no. On and off. Okay. Depending on what you mean by centralized. Okay, but you didn't have to move to, like... Um... To, like, Italy. No, you didn't. Yeah. No, yeah. You, could, you could move to, like, the countryside. Okay. The first legal restrictions, like actual legal restrictions on abortion specifically happened under the Roman Empire, as many things did, because the Romans loved their laws. And these were a punishment for women who had had an abortion without the consent of the husband. Again, husbands have just more rights. Uh, The punishment here was also exile. And this happened during the reign of Septimus Severus and Antonius Corsella in the early 3rd century. But there was a second restriction, which is more interesting, I feel like, because it's not about, like, the husband or property or anything like that. And that is a restriction on abortion that used herbal remedies if the, if the person who used the remedies died. If the person who used the remedies died, the person who supplied the remedies to the person who was pregnant, they would also be put to death. But that's interesting, because it's almost like a regulation of... Of mm-hmm. like uh, of drugs. Yeah, it's so, like a health measure for, yeah, exactly. for the pregnant people rather than anything else. But this yeah. did also mean that a lot of people were a little skittish about like giving out herbal remedies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's still like a it's like a regulation. Yeah. So you know, good and bad. Uh, but it's important to say here that abortion itself not illegal, not seen as controversial. Like it's go for it, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. It was uh, how you did it as opposed to like the abortion in itself. Exactly. As long as your husband consents, basically. Yeah, uh, and as long as nobody uh, nobody is hurt. I like that they kind of uh, weigh the, the interests of the people who are adults and like are already alive. Oh yeah, much higher. Much higher than, than the like, interest of the embryo or yeah, the fetus. Exactly. You also mentioned Christianity, that when that rolls around, there are a few more like social restrictions. But oftentimes, a lot of thought leaders still would not see it like the fetus, even if it is ensouled as like really a person. St. Augustine, for example, did not believe that if, if a fetus doesn't have fully formed arms or legs, it's basically a plant, which is a, a wild take, but it's fun. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. Like this whole idea that life begins at conception is actually really quite new. Oh, I think it started, yeah. it was either the 18th or the 19th century. Up until that mm-hmm. point, they they really just looked at, um, you know, does it move? Mm-hmm. Does it have a soul? <laughs> like, is um, it viable? Is it it's viable, yeah. It's often yeah, yeah. a dividing line. Yeah. But in, in, in fact, even in the 19th century, I've noticed, like, there were some individuals who were like, life begins at conception. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, there are some religion, like, Jainism, some sects of Jainism, for example, in India, say that, like, sperm itself is alive. So, mm-hmm. like... Even yeah. masturbation and like uh, sex that doesn't pr- produce life is like a waste of life. 
Um, yeah. But like yeah. th- those ideas never became mainstream. The idea that like talking about today in regards to abortion that like begins the conception began like in the 80s. Like it's super frequent. In Even, 1980s? Yeah. Oh, really? That became mainstream then. Mm, okay. Uh, because like in the, in the 20s and 30s, the argument then wasn't really like, well, life begins at conception. The argument mm-hmm. was more like, that's like, well, it's it, like life begins at some point, and because it does that, and we don't really know what it is, and also to restrict the rights of women. Yeah, that's. It feels that the yeah. restrictions around abortions, um, up until very recently, were very much based on like practical reasons, uh-huh. and I feel like with the development of medical science and kind of like us being able to know a bit more about pregnancy and you know fetal development, that's when we started actually asking like at what point do we consider an embryo or fetus to be a human yeah yeah. Uh, but before that it was very practical and based on based on facts and logic (laughs) (laughs) facts don't care about your feelings no exactly Mm -hmm. but for real yeah honestly i feel like it was quite recently that like this emotional element was added to the to the discourse Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah for sure now, these attitudes about like practicality in, uh, weren't just dominant in Europe. They were also uh, existent in India, which you mentioned a little bit, even though they interpreted it like a bit differently in regards to abortion. But it also existed in China. China had uh, multiple pamphlets and manuscripts that showed detailed instructions for how to do abortion. And they were often written by members of the high bureaucracy. So it wasn't like explicitly legal or illegal. That would often be like down to like local lords, mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like the empire generally of the Great Qing or whatever, the Ming dynasties, um, they d- basically did not care. Like it was fine. Like bureaucrats could write about it, like give instructions. There was a, also a vibrant industry for abortifacients, which you, uh, you mentioned like more in the modern day. But these were around in like, yeah, year two. Yeah. <laughs> like... Those um, have been around forever. Mm-hmm. And they were also marketed, but they were marketed more directly being like, hey, this is a potion that will give you an abortion. And this is also a reason why we know so much about it, because it was taxed. First major advances in medical technology was shifting the boundary of what would be considered a viable fetus. Doctors were also saying that the quickening is a bit of a myth. In the sense of, like, there's no, like, real developmental stage that happens at the quickening. Like, the day before and the day after quickening, the the fetal matter is the same. So if you're against abortions after the quickening, logically you would be against it before as well. Mm. And, uh, and this becomes pretty popular. The American Medical Association also promotes this, like, idea that, like, if... It, 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 like the quickening isn't a hard line like the the fetus is always sort of alive yeah it's like a continuous growth of the fetus it's mm. not like a now it's dead and then the lights switch on and mm-hmm. now it's alive exactly these attitudes led to the british empire and eventually the rest of the world outright banning abortion even before quickening this first happened officially in 1803 in the malicious shooting and stabbing act um, which was the first law in history to explicitly ban the practice of abortion entirely. And the penalty for carrying out an abortion or having an abortion was either death or transportation. I, I know what transportation means, but mm-hmm. it's also really, it, it's a really funny term, transportation, because <laughs> yeah. it can mean anything. Like, where are you taking me? Like, <laughs> like you're just going to transport me around. The truth is you're going to Australia. <laughs> yeah. Or taking me to Disneyland? <laughs> No, like a van pulls up to your house and they're like, get in the back, you're being transported. And you're like, where am I going? It does not concern you. 
I mean, it would, does not concern you. I mean, that's basically what would happen, but they would take you all the way to Australia. <laughs> yeah. They would show, yeah, they would snatch you and they'd take you to halfway across the world. When people talk about like, oh, Australia, like it's all full of criminals. Like uh, crime <laughs> in the British Empire during these days could, could be freaking anything. <laughs> because of this ban, abortifacients were also banned. Uh, as they would like lead to abortion, they would need to like circumvent uh, the legal framework. Uh, and a lot of these started to also be more and more reg- like they became deregulated initially instead of a huge black market flourished, like they had to market weirdly. But as time went on, there there were fewer and fewer loopholes for like pharmacists to like sneak through mm. uh, because I mean the legal framework like caught up eventually uh, and closed them. And a big reason for why these pills would be banned is that a lot of these pills were dangerous, right? They, they, they would harm like the people who took them a, a lot of the time. So a common argument both against abortion, but also against these like easy to use pills was to protect women's health. That's like a very common argument. A common argument even today, even though abortion is like pretty safe today. Uh, especially in comparison. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's reasonable that they would want to, like, protect public health by regulating the all those pills that mm-hmm. were circulating on the market. Like, but give them something, something else. Then <laughs> give them an alternative that's yeah. safer. A lot of countries during this time are also implementing bans against abortion, and the common, like, stated argument is oftentimes either like protecting the health of of pregnant people or sometimes the moral argument of like the the quickening doesn't really matter so like it's Mm alive-ish always but a big hidden reason that a lot of marxist historians like to implement here is that around like 1780 and like early 1800s empire becomes like a concern and statistics becomes a tool in empire and a big thing that a lot of people are are realizing during this time is like the more people your country has the more able you're, like, to influence the world. <laughs> like, the countries with a low population, they're, like, falling by the wayside. And we have, like, the Russian Empire, mm-hmm. France, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Great Britain. If you have a lot of people, mm-hmm. you can exert your power. And a lot of countries are realizing that, oh, we need more people. Yeah, <laughs> We yeah. can't just have, like, better health, better weapons. We need, like... We need manpower. Manpower. Yeah. Um, and this is something that starts happening at the turn of the century in the 1800s uh, and only really goes away like fairly recently like the population argument um well not everywhere every time i go <laughs> listen every time i go to moldova there they <laughs> there are like advertisements everywhere you know those like big posters or what do you call them like that cars drive by uh-huh, yeah what are those called i don't know posters billboards billboards huge billboards with pro-natalist messaging mm-hmm. Children are uh, the golden treasure of the parents. Um, a picture of uh, of a bird sitting on a on a nest full of golden eggs. Yeah. Um, there is nothing better in life than having children. <laughs> picture of uh, of a heterosexual couple holding two kids by the hands. Like the 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 pro natalist arguments are alive and thriving in places like that. That's and it, fair. And yeah. it fucking sucks because these people get like nothing, no help from the government to mm. raise their kids. Anyway, I just hmm. I've noticed this in America too. Like I have seen actually more recently I've seen billboards about like 
like it's a baby mm-hmm. and then like a link to like an obvious anti-abortion yeah. activist with the text like <laughs> like if you abort him who will be the next police officer <laughs> and it's just like well two in one baby <laughs> You can get rid of them both with one easy pill. Yeah. No, but, like, honestly, there's so much, like, pro-natalist, but also anti-abortion, like, uh, messaging Mm. and um, campaigns in Mm. Moldova. Like, that's something that, speaking of, you know, because I recently visited, that's something I always notice. Like, the buses are filled with posters spreading, like, just complete misinformation yeah, yeah. complete false facts about how it's like two weeks old <laughs> it has the, fully grown it hands. has little toes and it's like no it doesn't no it's it doesn't eight, it's eight cells at this point <laughs> like how are you allowed to put up lies and like they're everywhere too and they always use those stupid ass like pictures of babies with like blue eyes just sitting in a, oh, yeah. like i listen i i'm okay with babies but it's just so obvious and it's so yeah. disgusting, like the way they're they're manipulating mm-hmm. the, the messaging. Like it just makes me really angry. I'm sorry. My favorite one of them is like where it's just like this is a this is a two month old fetus and it's like a toddler who's like four yeah. years old. So what are you talking about? It's like writing, re- doing homework, <laughs> <laughs> playing Fortnite, applying to university. <laughs> oh my god, it's a fully grown adult. Yeah, yeah. This is a, this is a, but like, here's the thing, because it's working, because every time I go, this is something that I've actually noticed, and I've never noticed it before. You basically, like, every time you see women out in town, they have babies. Yeah. They ha- they're pushing prawns with, prawns with prawn? Prawns? Prawns. Prawns. Prawns is shrimp. <laughs> the fridge. No, they're they're pushing, pushing shrimp down the street. They're pushing prams with babies in them, or they're holding, like... A baby and a toddler going to school. It's yeah. like, and they're like, tw- and they're like 22, 22 years yeah. old. And like, that's the other thing because then not, none of them look, or none of them, so many of them just look completely unprepared for what they're doing. Mm. Like, it helps to be prepared. Yeah. And it helps to maybe like turn 25 before, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to tell people, you know, some people know they want to yeah. have kids forever, but yeah. and some just, the, people do great, but like, people do great, yeah. but there's something about seeing. Like, like actively, a young yeah. a young woman who's f- clearly freaking out, unable to to like the baby's crying. She's got like a mask on her chin, um, you know, trying to put a, a sweater on the baby. The baby's screaming and writhing in its pram. This is like you don't look ready, <laughs> and yeah. it's um it's just such a shame yeah. that this messaging is. It's a shame that like there's being, a lot of like propaganda yeah. that's basically coercing, coercing as many people, people as like to get pregnant yeah exactly and like not giving them any support yeah. any help like whether financial or with resources or mm-hmm. well this argument with like population growth uh that's that starts here uh for a few reasons partially it's because there's like a lot of european countries are having big wars with each other and are losing manpower but also healthcare is going up so child mortality is like drastically mm-hmm. going down mm-hmm. so suddenly like because historically, like if you had more babies, that doesn't, necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that the population is going to rise. Like if you're a serf and you have eight babies compared to like your neighbor who has two, you know, fast forward 10 years. <laughs> you have the same a lot, of, a lot of their kids are going to be dead. <laughs> like statistically, a lot of them are. Yeah. Um, but now, like if you have more kids, a lot of those kids are, are going to be, grow up and, you know, hopefully in the eyes of the empire, join the military mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, conquer some people in Africa. This is the argument that people used. And it's an argument that you can also like slowly see even today seep into attitudes uh, because like people are talking about like 
you know, highly industrialized countries have very low birth rates right now. Like Japan is having like a birth rate crisis, basically. So it's a, it's a sort of similar argument, but instead of like empire for the military, it's sort of like workforce for the economy. Uh, so it's a, it's a similar type-ish argument. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, though, there is a counter backlash against the backlash uh, of the women's rights movements and against the harsh penalties for abortion as enforcement had begun to be more and more effective and abortion was started to be seen more connected to birth control generally, which was an area where many feminists were making great legal strides, basically saying that like women have a right to family planning. And this was also connected to a lot of like leftist movements at the time, many of whom argued for like more personal rights uh, and like individual determinism, which was very popular in like the 1800s and like early 1900s, where like <laughs> like a lot of people like didn't even have the right to quit their jobs. Mm-hmm. So like a big point in leftism of the time is like I am an individual, I have a right to do what I want. Um, very connected, actually, to like what a lot of people think libertarianism mm-hmm. is today. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of overlap there. And personal rights and individual rights is something that abortion falls into. Like, that a person has a right to their own body, that no one else has a right to use that. And that comes up in the modern legislation, too, which is why I'm mentioning it. Um, a lot of these leftists also argued for communist revolution, which, I'm, which is going to be relevant, because oftentimes these revolutions didn't succeed. But one time it did, because... Uh, the first government to legalize abortion and make it available on request for no cost was the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. <laughs> Thank you, Lenin. <laughs> na 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 <laughs> I will gladly add the, the Soviet um, anthem. <laughs> the Is so- it copyrighted? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Are we gonna get a who, owns the, who owns the, the Soviet Union's national anthem? I think it's It belongs to the people, surely. Yeah. It's probably fine. The Soviet Union hoped to provide access to abortion in a safe environment, provided by a trained doctor instead of something called a babki, uh, which was a name for basically a type of Russian midwife, which mm-hmm. was the more common practice uh, in, in, in Russia at the time. This campaign was extremely effective in urban areas and it was often like encouraged almost as a sort of like... They, they really wanted to promote the idea that they, as the Soviet Union, has, like, completely changed the game for in terms of, like, individual rights. Like, the Soviet, the, the Russian Empire, you couldn't do anything. But in, in, in the glorious Soviet Union... Um, like, Look at all the rights we're e- getting. Every person has a right to their own body. No yeah. one can force you to do, to do something else with your own body that you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, including to the point where, like, even, even if a fetus is alive, doesn't matter. Like, like, it could be a fully formed adult. It doesn't matter. Like, you as a person, have more rights to your own body than, than whatever fetus you have inside you. Whatever fetus you have. <laughs> That's basically what they said. <laughs> um, however, from 1936 until 1955, the Soviet Union made abortion illegal again, except for medically recommended cases. And this came from worries about population growth from Joseph Stalin, because <laughs> Stalin was worried. He wanted to encourage population growth as well as place a stronger emphasis on the importance of the family unit to communism. Because, like, you, okay, I've given you individual rights. You guys have had a good time with that. Back to the roots, back to the family unit. We need to have a strong army. More more people. More people. It's like Nazis, not too far away. Yeah. You guys had 20 years of fun. (laughs) It's (laughs) tough. 
Communism needs babies. <laughs> Honeymoon period with the Soviet Union over. Over. But the Soviet Union really was like the first ever in the world to fully legalize it. Yeah. Like to, to explicitly say in their laws that like you are allowed to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And facilitate that process. Was it for ideological reasons primarily, or was yeah. there something else? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, almost entirely for ideological reasons. The idea that, like, uh, as as mentioned, like people when people talk about leftism today, there's a lot of talk of like economic mm -hmm. structuring. But leftism then was very much like individual rights. That like even though maybe I don't have a right to like own a massive corporation, mm -hmm. the individual rights of the workers outweigh that, mm -hmm. and that's why I'm not allowed. So. I, the idea was like giving the proletariat as much right as possible also means giving them the right to uh, control their own bodies as much as they want to. Not I'm, as much as some like women's um, trade unions would have wanted <laughs> during the time, but it's also, but, but it was also at the time the most progressive yeah. government like in the world. They also like legalized homosexuality until yeah. Stalin. I'm, I'm thinking that Stalin I'm, ruined everything. I'm thinking that maybe a lot of it is also due to um, like the pushback against Christian values. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they really tried to um, stomp out like everything uh, related mm -hmm. to to Christianity and like whatever religious values and ideas they had before the Soviet Union. Yeah, it's very much similar to like uh, an idea that they have in France, where they have they very much have like an idea of like pre and post revolution mm -hmm. but like they have the, the the old regime which embodies basically everything that's bad mm -hmm. and we never want to go back to that mm -hmm. and then we have the new regime that is which entirely is, which different is everything good but yeah, it's like yeah, the polar yeah. opposite of yeah, it yeah exactly and the soviet union kind of did a similar thing where yeah. the old regime abortion bad the new regime abortion good mm -hmm. uh, homosexuality bad before now it's good for a while for, for a little bit until stalin in the rest of the world, though, feminists are still gaining grounds during this time. In the US, a woman in 1964 died while having an illegal abortion. Her name was Gary Santoro, and her photo became the symbol for the pro-choice movement, arguing that abortions still happen, like the ban on abortion hasn't done anything to restrict it, they're just less safe. Mm. This leads, eventually, to the case of Roe versus Wade, which is... A big reason why we're making this episode today because the supreme court are apparently gonna do something about it and are most likely to maybe abolish it yeah and um or we didn't really it. say this at the beginning but we're recording this on the 20th of december and by the time this episode comes out it might uh, like some things may have changed when it comes to like the the roe versus wade overturning process mm -hmm. as of right now they're still talking mm -hmm. about it but at the time I just, of recording, abortion at, is a right in the U.S. But I just, yeah, but I just wanted to say that in case, like, by the time this comes out, like, it's not not like irrelevant, but uh, if the information changed yeah, or yeah. the situation changed, exactly. Now I'm going to talk about Roe versus Wade a little bit more in detail, but I just want to mention that like the story of how abortion shifted from legal to illegal and back to legal is unique for every country. So I'm painting a very like broad picture of like general attitudes. And you've also like mentioned a lot of attitudes which are like very much intertwined. Um, but there is a general like ideological flow that unifies many of these movements. Like worries about population growth, like leftist ideas, feminist ideas, uh, and so on. And I'm just going to uh, very quickly say before I dig into like the, the current arguments about Roe v. Wade is that uh, researching this topic is a nightmare because half of the s sources that you find are good and objective and like talk about it in a very nice way. And the other half of the sources are, are like 
the Romans were decadent heathens who tolerated abortion, and that's why the empire fell apart. So, like halfway read, reading the source, you're just like, I'm, I'm out. I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't. So, Roe versus Wade is a landmark ruling. It dates back to 1963 of a woman who, for the purposes of the lawsuit, was referred to as Jane Roe, which is an anonymization of her real name. Uh, and Wade is um, uh, like a Texas. <laughs> Like attorney, for as far as I could tell, mm-hmm. he doesn't really matter. The Roe is the, like the person who matters. I, I honestly didn't look in, too much into who Wade is because he doesn't matter. Jane Roe wanted to have an abortion, but lived in Texas, where that was not available at all during the time. And Roe versus Wade is a landmark ruling in so much that it it's not a, like a new law in any case. Like that's not really what the Supreme Court does. The, the Supreme Court is supposed to interpret already existing law. They can't make law themselves. And Roe versus Wade became very controversial when it happened uh, because the Supreme Court sided with Roe um, for a few arguments that I'll get into, but it changed radically current interpretation of the law. Uh, And some have criticized the Supreme Court for doing what's called judicial activism, where basically like if if the court wants abortion to be a right, then they can like do a very like weird interpretation of the law in order for that to happen. And there are a lot of criticism of this from all sides, which I'll also get into. Now, the reason why the court sided with Roe is because of a privacy issue. The idea that no one else has the right to know what you're doing with your own body. And this goes back to sort of the, the, like the, the more like individual rights arguments that I mentioned before. But basically, they said that you as an individual have privacy. The government or anyone else can't ask you if you're having an abortion or like force you to have an abortion. And similarly, they can't force you to carry a pregnancy to term if you don't want to, because then they are violating your own bodily autonomy. An alternative reading to this would be like a doctor, for example, doesn't have the right to like kidnap a person and like take half of their liver in order to save a life. Like, even if they would save a life 100% of the time and you would be fine, they're not allowed to do that because they would be stealing a part of your body and, like, breaking your, your own bodily autonomy and your privacy. So the court said that, like, you can't do that, even in cases of pregnancy. And therefore, people do have a right to choose. However, it also said that this right is not absolute. And here's where a lot of problems get in. So, for example, the statute by the Supreme Court says that people do have privacy when it comes to abortion and that abortions must be available without an undue burden, which uh, is a bit vague when it comes to its interpretation, which has also led to some problems. They've also said that the government cannot restrict abortion at all during the first trimester. They can have some health restrictions in the second trimester, also vague, which has led to some problems. But during the third trimester, state governments are allowed to do basically whatever they want. This means that abortion is a right, but it's also very much in the hands of individual states, which is why states have restricted abortion as much as they possibly can by making access hard and by making those health restrictions during the second trimester as absurd as possible, as long as it's not an undue burden. So many abortion lawsuits today center on the question of what counts as an undue burden. In another landmark case in 1996, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the Supreme Court ruled that a spousal notification requirement, where a woman wanting to have an abortion would have to give prior notice to her husband, violated that undue burden standard, because it basically like gives the husband power over the woman. Again, it's not okay. 
and other restrictions like a 24-hour waiting period and parental consent for minors were not found to violate that standard. So it's a little, it's a little muddling. And basically the second that one state implements one of these restrictions and they find out that they can do that without breaking the law, a lot of other conservative states will implement those as well. But these restrictions are only for people. They can restrict the places where people get abortion much more. Many abortion clinics, for example, are more regulated than full hospitals, requiring wide hallways for gurneys, sidewalk restrictions for ambulances, a high minimum roof height, extremely high ventilation requirements, and basically whatever else you can come up with. Because as long as it's something that could be good for health, you can demand that the abortion clinic must have it. Uh, even though an abortion clinic doesn't need any of those things if you're just there to provide abortion. Like, you don't need a gurney hallways. And by doing this, they put a lot of abortion clinics in administrative hell, making it almost impossible to run one, which is another way that they can restrict the access to abortion. The absolute dumbest requirement I've seen, uh, which you've probably heard of, have been those where they force the pregnant person to look at the fetus for a minimum amount of time <sighs> before having an abortion. Because that's gotta like suck for everybody involved. Because the doctor is legally required to do it or they will be like in violation of the law and the parent has to like actively look at it for a certain amount of time. So because of this, there's actually an argument for overturning Roe versus Wade from the point of view of someone who is pro-abortion. Right now, there's a lot of like activism to sort of like keep it in place, but this is the status quo as it is right now. And it's obviously not good. Because of those strange restrictions that favor anti-abortion activists, even if Roe versus Wade stays, it basically means that the states can do the sort of restrictions they already are doing. So the Texas abortion ban, for example, that's constitutional because the Supreme Court said so not a long ago. It doesn't violate Roe versus Wade. So Roe versus Wade is basically meaningless now. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to stay or whatever. Uh, it should stay because it provides that minimum floor, but it's already so low. But the argument for someone who is pro-abortion to repeal Roe versus Wade would be to do it in politics, to just make a law, a new law, that implements Roe versus State into actual law. Because again, the Supreme Court interprets law, they don't make law. So Democrats, if they wanted to, for example, they could just make a law that said abortions are rights to everyone up to a certain time uh, and, and they have to have access to it within a certain amount of distance. And suddenly, states can't do that anymore. Unfortunately, because of American politics, this is almost impossible to do, which is why so much of the legislative effort is sort of like shifted to the Supreme Court. But doing this would make uh, Roe versus Wade irrelevant entirely. We could just like shelve it and go with new law without needing to rely on both this law and like five other laws um, that all make up the like the patchwork network of current abortion legality in the US. Right now, that looks unlikely. It also looks unlikely that Roe versus Wade is going to survive much longer because, as mentioned, when it happened, they were criticized for doing judicial activism. And now there are a lot of people on the Supreme Court who are either just anti-abortion or they're something called originalists, which means that they interpret the letter of the law as it says, not what they want it to be. So if the law, privacy law, for example, doesn't actually like mention abortion in any, in any way, they can be like, well, that's not what the law says. So it's not a right. And the, it would be up to politicians to make that a right in law. However, this is also not going to happen, unfortunately. Um, Democrats could do this right now if they wanted to, uh, but they would need to do some legislative changes in order to do it. Probably like repealing the filibuster in Congress and Senate uh, and having a better grip on their own party. <laughs> 
there's like two politicians right now in the Democratic Party who just ruin everything. Um, but this is probably not going to happen. Right now, the legal framework rests on dozens and dozens of laws and precedents and also varies from state to state so significantly that it's, it's almost impossible to sort of decipher how to fix abortion law without making a new one. And that would be a real solution. But that's also easier said than done. Mm. Yeah, it it seems it seems nice, and it's something that I haven't really, I guess, considered. I've just I've just been thinking about like Roe versus Wade as being like the basically like the foundation that we need. Mm-hmm. That it should not be overturned, and I haven't I haven't been thinking about how it actually has a lot of limitations as it is right now, and that maybe a solution would be overturning it, but then replacing it with something better. Mm-hmm. But like. Is that going to happen? <laughs> I mean, probably not. Like, yeah. unfortunately, like that's something that I've seen a lot of people talk about when it comes to the current uh, situation. Because Democrats, for example, have a majority. Yeah. Like, they have the presidency. They have a majority in both houses. They could do it if they really wanted to, but not all Democrats want to. So mm-hmm. it's it's very likely that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade, which is, as you said, the foundation. Um. And then there will be nothing left to replace it. And then at that point, states can go nuts and just outright ban it, make it criminal to have an abortion, which Texas is salivating to do. Um, sucks being a person who can get pregnant in the US right now. And that's a, that's a big problem in like American legislation right now, though, right? Because like even with Roe v. Wade as it is right now, like people, like a lot of people, like I think 15 people have been sent to jail for having a miscarriage because it's like seen as. Like manslaughter, yeah, which is wild to me. Yeah. There are like the, uh, the some laws like basically force like minors yeah. to have uh, to have children with no exceptions yeah. for like for either rape or incest. It's um, horrible. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I can I can see why a lot of people on Twitter are tweeting just like let me out, mm. um, like not as a joke. <laughs> None of this is to mention even, like, the social stigma around it, like, mm-hmm. especially in more conservative areas. Mm-hmm. Like, I keep... There's, like, one abortion clinic in Texas right now, and it is, like, always surrounded by, like, an angry mob of people who will yell at anyone entering it. So, yep. like, like, that is... I can't imagine how the horrible energy that would need to take. The energy? Well, like the, I feel like I would be like, less concerned about the energy and more about, like, like am I able to get an abortion, yes or no? Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> but, am I, I mean, safe? Yeah, but obviously it's, it's uh, yeah. it doesn't help. Yeah. Legally, there has to be a pathway to enter it, too. Like, they can't actually stop you from entering, because mm-hmm. then they're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. But they will make it as difficult for it as they can. Yeah. And it's, it's truly awful. I keep hearing, uh, there's also something that happens in the US, which happens in a lot of places, where, like, you can have a job where your entire job is escorting people to the to the abortion clinic or like smuggling them into it. Mm. This is something that you hear about in like actual dystopias. Yeah, it's it's very dystopic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to like uh, dwell on it too much, but it's one of those things that don't feel real. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? Um yeah, I uh, we so we we talked about the United States, and then I was also going to talk about uh, Poland because Poland is another place where abortion restrictions um, have where you know it's another place where they've they've been introducing more abortion restrictions, and it's been in the eyes of the like people have been watching it. It's yeah. the situation as it's been developing. 
Currently, abortion is only legal in Poland if the pregnancy is the result of a criminal act, uh, like rape or incest, mm -hmm. or if the woman's life or health is endangered by the continuation of the pregnancy. And this was caused by a bill that was passed in October 2020. But even before this ban, last year, abortion was barely accessible, even under the ground stipulated by the Family Planning Act in 1993, which allowed abortions if yeah. fetuses had a severe defect, if the pregnancy carried risks for the, for the mother's health or life, or if the pregnancy was the product of incest or rape. So even before the recent ban, only 10% of the public hospitals were actually contracted by law to provide abortion care. And um, the ban in October 2020 also followed a bill implementing further restrictions to sexual education in Poland. Of course. Do you remember, do you remember that? Um, there was a campaign that was collecting signatures in support of the bill, and it was called Stop Pedophilia. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. because uh, the message was that sexual education or sexuality education would uh, create, like, would, would support or encourage pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Which is just just amazing. And by the way, we had something like that actually in Moldova when I was, uh, I think, in middle school there, where we had sexual education for like two weeks. <laughs> and then there was this like huge scandal where like priests went on TV and they were talking about how it's like immoral and it encourages, um, yeah, it encourages pedophilia and homosexuality and the kids are going to grow up to be gay. And they, they pulled all the books and they stopped the course and we never had sexual education ever again. Um, Good God. And it's like, you know, we're talking about abortion, but like sexual education is so important for, oh, yeah. for like, you know, so like people know about contraceptives mm -hmm. and like se sexual health and STIs yeah. and... The, um, the number one way to reduce abortions is to have a firm like sexual education. Yeah. That's yeah. like... Literally, the thing. Yeah. It's weird to me that people who are against abortion are also against sexual education. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like statistically proven to be effective to reduce abortions. Because people will have fewer unwanted pregnancies. Right. Like, what? What are you? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to keep your population uneducated, and like, like not know what sex is, um, not know about contraceptive options, STIs? Like, you're just keeping your population uneducated and sick yeah. and stuck with children that they cannot possibly support. Mm. I I feel like myself getting a little bit emotional about yeah. this because it's just, it's such a heavy topic and it's so, it's disgusting really, like the way that, that things are in, in some places. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the ruling in October 2020 did not entirely outlaw abortion. So there are still grounds on which somebody could legally obtain one, like I mentioned earlier, but it has placed the burden of providing resources and access to abortion information on NGOs and informal groups and, and, and initiatives. And it's also made it so much more difficult to obtain abortions, even if one technically has the legal grounds for access. Um, and there's a bunch of reports coming out of women being denied abortion care in hospitals, despite despite fulfilling the legal terms. Yeah. And so the ban has led to about 10 to 15% of Polish women seeking abortions in neighboring countries, as well as feminist NGOs, such as the Federation for Women and Family Planning, bless their hearts, offering illegal abortions to those who need them. Good. Um, yeah, I mean, I honestly, I don't know super much about them, so I, I, I don't want to... Um, 
That's fair. I don't, I, you know, I don't know super much about them. I don't want to say like, I don't want to give like too much support to mm. an organization without like knowing actually what they do. Fair. But they seem, but they seem good, and they seem to help people who need abortions a mm. lot. Yeah. By giving them information, giving them resources, helping them, um, you know, go abroad if they mm. need uh, abortions, and like yeah. making the connections for them. So yeah. I think that's really great. That's something that I uh, learned in Swedish history class that like during. Like during the, not maybe during the 40s, but like, like yeah, late 40s and 50s, like a lot of people in Sweden would go to Poland mm. to have abortion. <laughs> oh, how the turntables. Um, because, because like dur- during communism, abortion was like much yeah. more available. Um, but now a lot of Polish, a lot of Polish people are coming to Sweden yeah. to have abortions here. Just because yeah. Sweden has like a, a, a bit better uh, abortion policy. Yeah. yeah Could yeah. be better, but it's still pretty good. And it's, I feel like also the case of with Poland and also in the U.S. also shows that like how fragile that right is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That like it can be taken away so quick. Yeah, it's scary. Mm-hmm. That's something like like people occasionally hear like every four or five years in Sweden talk about like well maybe we should restrict abortion a little bit. And I get so like scared. Yeah, because like because it's, it's one of those things that like if if that falls like what's next? Oh yeah. Um, I think actually I. I think I heard that in one of your videos, um, how certain groups, like, you know, you, you sort of, you start taking, you start by taking rights away from one group. Mm. And if that goes well, then you move on to the next group. Mm. And it's kind of like an order of uh, how accept, how socially acceptable it is to, yeah. to like, um, discriminate them. Mm-hmm. Now that I think about it, I think you were actually talking about trans people. Uh, well, I mean, it, 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 first, it, but it falls, it falls in the sense of like, a lot of people who do these kind of restrictions are people who want to like solidify power for themselves and want to be authoritarian. Yeah. So like, I mean, it's no coincidence that like, as you say, like in Poland, they're also restricting sexual education, but they're also restricting like LGBT rights, trans yeah, rights, yeah. like yeah. women's rights generally, uh, the rights of immigrants, mm-hmm. uh, the rights of Romani people, like they're... Um, it's kind of all falling apart together. Exactly. Like once, once one domino falls... Yeah. It's a lot it's easier all, to take, it's to so, take away yeah. everything else. Yeah. So it's it's um, like abortion rights is 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 both one of the dominoes that like falls and ruins uh, rights for so many people, but it's also like a canary in the coal mine for like okay, well, what's what's after th- mm. what's after that? Yeah, because there's there's always something more, unfortunately. Um, hey Poland, get your shit together. <laughs> hey the European Union, get your shit together and yeah, condemn Poland totally. a little bit. Come on. Okay, but we need to wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, things used to be uh, more uh, legal. <laughs> now things are getting worse. Once again, a, a cheerful episode. Yeah, I, I don't really know how to make this um, better. Like, do you think we should try to, to wrap it up in a more cheerful way? Because, like, what is... What's... How does one... Yeah. How does one inspire hope in the listeners? Uh, donate to Planned Parenthood if you're in America. If you're in Poland, donate to... But it's in there. I unfortunately I don't know that much about Poland because uh, American cultural hegemony. I know more about them. But like you know, actively stand up for the rights of people who need abortions. Like it's because it's a very it's an extremely important right. All right. <laughs> Have you had a good episode though? <laughs> Have you enjoyed this episode on the critical right to abortion? Well, listen, I think it started out fun. <laughs> I tried to make my part fun, and then you, then you came in with 
with Roe versus Wade I, being taken away. I tried. I had to talk about Poland. <laughs> I tried making it fun initially, I, but yeah, you know. it's a lot more fun when when it's a conversation that they used to have two thousand years ago. It's mm-hmm. not so fun when you start realizing like, oh wait, we're still mm. having this conversation. <laughs> it's something that concerns me directly mm. and. Like, and it's, it's it's like we're having it on worse terms than they did yeah. 2,000 years ago. Oh my God, things are worse now. Oh God, <laughs> we live in a society. Yeah, we hope that despite the toxic vibes of this episode... <laughs> the putrid the energies. The putrid energies. Um, we hope you learned a lot. Yeah, uh, we hope you, you learned a lot and that you were at least somewhat entertained by the history of it. And we, radicalized to take action to defend it. Yes, if you, if you liked it, uh, do consider supporting us on Patreon. Or if you can't do that, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts mm-hmm. is great. Oh, it's it's so good. Yeah, it's like, the, it, I, I, they drive a lot of things. Yeah, it's it supports us a lot. So it would it would mean a lot if you did that. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, just thank you for listening and mm-hmm. sharing. Follow us on Twitter, twittercom slash leechfestpod. Leechfest. Leechfest Follow us on Twitter on Leech Pod and we will see you next time. Yeah. <laughs>